University presses around the world contribute to what the Association of University Presses has called bibliodiversity by publishing nearly 20,000 books each year on emerging areas in the arts and sciences, as well as discussions of pressing social issues. Not strictly commercial, yet still subject to market forces, UPs have long placed their titles with academic libraries and in local bookstores. As readers confront the endless choices on the online bookshelf, though, what should university presses offer to hold the public's interest while satisfying the strict demands of scholarship? Can UP editors and staff's sustainability meet the demands of social movements calling for a remake of publishing? Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. Oxford University, which began printing books in 1478, operates one of the oldest and most prestigious of university presses. In the U.S., Nico Fund is president and academic publisher at OUP, where he faces challenges from the marketplace of ideas and from colleagues keen to redefine publishing and publishers. He joins me from his home office in Brooklyn. Welcome to the program, Nico. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I was happy to chat about publishing university presses. Well, we're happy to have you join us and to talk about that particular subject, university presses. And I want to ask you first about your thoughts on the role of UPs today in the entire publishing ecosystem and in a society that's skeptical of academics and authorities. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on uh, the the direction that we face. So if we're talking about the role that presses have played with regard to helping scholars communicate with one another within their own uh, disciplinary communities, uh, then I think what we do is largely the same. How we do it has, has changed dramatically, but the way we do that, I think, remains largely the same. I think if you widen the lens and look at the, the broader culture, uh, I'm struck by the ways in which a lot of the things that percolate up within the academy also then find their way out into the culture through the university presses. And that can be everything from uh, discussions about uh, identity. It can be discussions about income inequality. I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital, which was published by Harvard and drove this global conversation about uh, about income inequality. Uh, it can be books that Oxford published uh, 50, 70 years ago about environmentalism by Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold. Uh, so I think that the role that presses play in that respect as a kind of seedbed or petri dish for these ideas, uh, I think is um, that's constant as well. I think it's more important now than it has been in any time I can think of uh, in, in the time that I've been, been working in the industry, because I think the, the forces of, of, of willful misrepresentation of demagoguery are, are louder and have themselves these, these bullhorns now that didn't exist 20, 25 years ago. And so I think our role in combating those and relying on, on data and evidence and empiricism rather than on uh, emotion and uh, an attempt to mislead, uh, I think is more important now than, than ever. And in fact, the deep scrutiny of society and of scholarship that is a hallmark of the academic world must have an impact on your work at university presses like like Oxford University Press. So are you optimistic or pessimistic that questions about legacies of racism, colonialism and sexism will lead to lasting change at an institution like your own? Uh, yeah, I'm actually very optimistic about it. And I think if, honestly, if I weren't both optimistic and, and uh, energized by it, I would be uh, 
uh, not in the right in the right job. I think that the changes that we've seen uh, that have have kind of rolled over the social landscape, the academic landscape over the course of the last uh, four or five years, particularly, not only are leading to lasting change, but I think have already led to lasting change. We've instituted a series of uh, guidelines around uh, how we ask our authors to do their work, how we ask reviewers to think of the peer review process, certainly how we hire. So I think there's been a lot of uh, those changes have already been implemented. Uh, and I think once those are implemented, they don't tend to, uh, in my experience, get, get reversed. I think one of the challenges for us, given that we are essentially the voice of the academy, is that the composition of our author body often does mirror that of the academy. So if I were to say, for instance, that I want from one year to the next to have a 50-50 uh, uh, gender mix, uh, let's say, in any of our disciplinary communities. There are some uh, disciplinary communities that are overwhelmingly male, yeah, economics, classics. Uh, and so these kinds of edicts uh, would be very hard to live by without just massively contracting the amount of publishing we do. But that said, I don't want to sound uh, hopeless or powerless in this respect. I think we actually are doing a lot, even as the tail to the academy's dog, to try to uh, direct things in, in, in certain directions and to do that all while uh, while focusing on our, on our core mandate, which is in fact reflecting uh, what is happening in the academy. So I think that that's, um, I, I have to say, I, I, it's, I think a lot of the last five years have given a new life to a lot of industry veterans. It's not that, that it's not difficult. It's challenging. It's hard. It's uh, complicated. Uh, it's stressful. But I think it's long overdue, and I think that some of the changes we've we've made already uh, have been uh, have been well received and are actually yielding pretty uh, positive results. I, I like the idea of that academy dog uh, that you're the tail of, but I wonder whether it's a question of who's walking whom, because it could be, can't it, that, that university presses can lead faculty, can lead the institutions in directions that it might not have thought it would go. Yeah, and I think we have a lot of uh, examples of that. One of the examples I, I find myself just autobiographically referencing is the Schomburg Library of 19th Century Black Women Writers, which we published when I was just starting at Oxford in the late 80s. Uh, it was a 20-volume series that expanded to, to 30 volumes over time, and it essentially recovered an entire literary canon of black women's writing in this country. And um, I do think that's where the role of a university press is quite specific, and even the role of, of a press like Oxford, because Oxford gives given the nature of the OED, given the nature of our reference publishing, uh, it does lend a certain gravitas or imprint that uh, I flatter myself in thinking that maybe other presses don't have quite that same that same impact. Um, and there are presses, a lot of the work around um, women's writing has been published by Virago and Feminist Press, and, uh, and that's spectacularly good work. But um, when Oxford essentially says this is a body of literature that, that should be uh, codified and enter the canon, it does have that effect you were describing of basically uh, nudging things in a certain direction. And I think that that is, is a real positive. At the same time, one of the points I, I do introductions to ROUP staff on a regular basis, and one of the points I'm, I'm at pains to make these days is to emphasize that we are not explicitly a publisher of social justice or a social justice publisher, I should say. Um, and by that, I mean that a lot of uh, social science work, I think, when published and uh, listened to and heard by legislators and politicians can have a very salutary effect on uh, economic and social justice. But 
we do that in our capacity as as academic publishers, not as agents of social justice. And that may sound like a specious um, distinction. I think it's actually an absolutely crucial distinction, because if people think of us as a social justice publisher, they will unavoidably disappoint it, be disappointed. But I think that by virtue of being a social just a publisher of social justice uh, as a component of our larger mission, I think that work is often heard and inf- has a greater influence than it would be if we were an explicitly if our compass was explicitly oriented towards social justice. Well, well, that's an important point, isn't it? And that distinction is being a, a publisher of social justice rather than a social justice publisher. That might be one that, that that is clear in your own mind, but but staff may have questions about the difference, do they? Uh, they do. And I think that there are expectations. Uh, that I think there are a lot of different expectations these days of uh, people in positions such as mine. I think that I, I personally find the, the whole Steve Jobs, Jack Welch school of, of you know, alpha male leadership, well, debatable on a number of grounds. But uh, I think it's just not 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 the moment for that kind of uh, approach to trying to, to uh, move organizations in the right direction. So I think that uh, being more consultative, uh, listening to people more and actually trying to uh, I, I have to say I'm I personally have been influenced over the course of my life by um, by. By the, the the life of Bob Moses, not the uh, New York City urban planner, but the uh, uh, the person who was responsible for leading Mississippi voter registration drive in, in 1965, uh, and his one of the anecdotes of his life, he wore these Oshkosh Bagosh uh, overalls, and when he realized that all these white college students who were coming down to the South to help register black voters were basically mimicking his style of dress. That made him profoundly uneasy. Uh, and he, you know, considered to be sort of almost a form of unhelpful idolatry. And of course, the whole uh, argument about community organizing and the emphasis is on community. So I think that uh, drawing on the force and the power of your staff's passions and your colleagues' passions and giving them a voice, even if you don't agree with what they're saying, that to me is the most interesting aspect of, of this kind of a job. And it actually reflects the editorial culture of most publishing companies where when you decide what to publish, you're doing so by virtue of an editorial meeting or debate from various functions and various people saying, yes, this is something we should publish or no, this is intellectually not as sound as it needs to be. And then the whole conversation about what the commercial value of something is. So uh, I think that reflecting the, the in your practices, whether it's in the core practice of publishing or in how you organize your your um, your publishing house, I think there's a lot of consistency there. And that's, I, th- I think, beneficial. And how challenging is it to have that conversation today? Because for the last couple of years with the pandemic, there's been a working from home culture that has subsumed the office culture. There's a return to the office going on, of course. How important is it for OUP that the office be a place where culture is sustained and and where it thrives? Yeah, I mean, this is something obviously that we're all trying to work through on a daily basis. I've, I've, I think I've probably now read literally hundreds of articles, uh, in places like the Wall Street Journal and The Economist and the FT and the Harvard Business Review and all these places about, you know, whether a physical geographic nexus is crucial to the culture of an organization. And, I think that my current <laughs> thinking about this is that the office is essentially a very helpful shortcut. It's a gathering ground. It's a place where people come together and collide and uh, without 
without succumbing to this, this, I think, often somewhat inflated language of, you know, you have this cross-pollinization of ideas when, or cross-pollination of ideas when people get together. And uh, I think some of that is a bit overstated. But I, I do think that that's a crucial part of getting to know the people you work with. And I think that when you talk to most publishing companies, uh, people who retire from Oxford, uh, people who retire from a lot of a lot of houses, what they often refer back to is the fact that their their colleagues became their friends. That they that the this notion about work life balance gradually shifts over time into a form of work life integration. And I think that it's um, it's very hard to achieve that. You can achieve it. I think it's it's more difficult and it's a bit more labor to do that if you don't have an office. And I say that as somebody um, you know who who is not sold on this idea of having you know butts and seats five days a week. So I. I do think that we're in the process of, uh, you know, still sort of figuring all of this out. And uh, it's going to be some time, I think. And it depends a lot uh, also on the industry. You know, for instance, editorial work, I think, is quite solitary work. And so I think that that is uh, something that um, I, I'm less less focused on than especially for, for newcomers, for people new to the industry. Uh, if I had not been um, hanging out and playing softball and going for a, a drink after work with people, I, I don't think I would have developed those relationships. And I just one final thought on this, because I've given this so much thought um, to the earlier point about uh, trying to lead an organization at this time. Uh, I think one of the, the perils of middle age is that you find yourself wanting things to be for others the way they were for you at that age. And I'm very conscious of the fact when I was an editorial assistant at Oxford, there was no Internet. So the, the idea that it is exactly the same for people who are in their early 20s and are entering the workforce for the first time, uh, that would be obviously ludicrous. At the same time, while I don't want to impose my experiences on others as a form of policy, when we have brought people together into the office, we've had several new joiners events, as we call them, where people come and get together. And having observed people, there is just this sense of playfulness and social life and joyfulness that comes when these folks are together because it's it's an odd transition going from uh, your pre-college life where you've been largely educated in a formal way to suddenly now, you know, a lot of you kind of fall off that, that postgraduate cliff and uh, you're just making your way. You're figuring it all out. And to be in the company of others who are doing the same thing, I think, is is really important. So, you know, I, I think this is not just an interesting issue with regard to publishing houses, it's an interesting issue with regard to uh, urban spaces, tax base. Uh, it's the implications for this are, are absolutely huge. And I think we'll be, we'll be, you know, five, 10 years from now, I suspect the conversation and my answer would probably be quite different, but that's my, my thought for now. And Nico Fund, we associate university presses with great books, yet the impact of journals and scholarly communications dwarfs the impact of books. So does that emphasis on books raise concerns for you? Should the reading public and even publishing professionals take more notice of journals publishing? Well, I think the short answer is yes. I think the, the longer answer, and if you talk to anybody who has spent their life working in journals, they do feel, I think, a sense of uh, perhaps mild resentment about the emphasis that is, is paid to books. But I think journals are inherently uh, a, a uh, the coin the, the coin of the realm in certain academic disciplines, mostly in the sciences and uh, in, in technical disciplines and in medicine, and uh, they they serve a very particular purpose there. Um, and and books don't really exist in the same way, uh, and that applies to some extent to social sciences. You know, in economics, you're credentialized for publishing in the Quarterly Journal of Economics more so than you are by publishing a book with Oxford University Press. 
So I think it just varies from 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 area to area, and uh, I don't think that um, I, I I don't actually. It was interesting uh, thinking about this as a just in terms of the the question you've posed because I I don't think of it, it juxtaposed in that way. Uh, I'm often asked by my colleagues or by other people, what what do your authors want? And my response, unsatisfyingly, is almost always it varies because if you go to a life scientist and you begin trying to make their prose more lyrical, often their response is going to be, listen, this is not, you know, a, a poem. This is research. I want it out quickly. Uh, whereas if you are talking to a literary scholar or somebody in sociology, an ethnographer who's writing a book about a community that has been uh, damaged by fracking, say, uh, in order for that book to actually extend to uh, outside of the academy, it does need to have a narrative tension. It does need to read well. So I think that it, it, it varies depending upon the individual area. Um, but journals are, are basically a form of academic communication, as are books. But books are also a means of transmitting uh, information into the, uh, uh, you know, into the public sphere uh, for, for nonfiction works. And I think that that's where, where the emphasis on books comes from. And as a publisher, as a university publisher, what's your preferred metric, Nico Fund? Is it gut feeling or user metrics? Well, again, uh, I, I would say I reject the oppositionalism of the two. <laughs> um, I would say you draw on all of it, right? You draw on sales data, you draw on past experience, you draw on usage metrics, you draw on author platforms. There are so many different ways in which we can now evaluate things. And I think it also varies from... Um, from fiction to nonfiction, I think fiction inherently is more subjective because it involves literary taste. Uh, and so I think their, um, uh, you know, their, their instinct and gut feeling is, is, is more of an issue. Whereas the kind of nonfiction that is most frequently read by, uh, or from most frequently published by university presses that is read by the general public, and that would be history, current events, politics, uh, science, uh, that, that relies on reading the uh, the, the zeitgeist, the, the, the you know the, the moment, and uh, so I think that uh, it's really important that um, uh, that you that you draw on all of it. I also think it's worth mentioning that it, it really depends a little bit on what you consider success to be. So if you look, for instance, at uh, a, a very common. Uh, category, which is uh, in, in the trade world, which is biography, you know, whether it's Hermione Lee writing a book about the playwright uh, Tom Stoppard, whether it's um, Jeffrey Stewart writing a uh, Pulitzer Prize National Book Award winning biography of Alan Locke, which we published a couple of years ago, whether it's Nell Painter writing about Sojourner Truth. Uh, I think the question is, what what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to, to make money? Are you trying to um, bring a life back into uh, public consciousness, which I think is often what it is? Are you trying to, as in the case of Beverly Gage's new book about J. Edgar Hoover, uh, are you trying to actually provide a new lens or a new interpretation of this already very famous person? What you're almost certainly not trying to do is get wealthy, because chances are, given the thousands of hours that people spend on on biographies, that um, you know you could work a minimum wage job and and, and do better. So I think this, the same holds true for publishers. Uh, did the Alan Locke biography that we published was that a book that generated a massive uh, sum of money for the author of the press? No, not really. But it was a book that we were 
disproportionately proud to publish. It had been under contract for 25 years. Uh, the editor, Susan Ferber, and the author had worked and worked and worked on this book uh, through multiple drafts. Um, and it brings back to life uh, somebody who many consider to be the, the, the uh, father of the Harlem Renaissance. So um, I think that that when you bring all these factors of, of usage and metrics and platform and, and gut instinct together, it also depends on uh, what you're doing it for. Uh, and I think different factors there get emphasized depending on what the answer to that question is. Nico Fund, president and academic publisher at Oxford University Press. Thanks for bringing all that together for us and for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can listen to Velocity of Content On Demand on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel and subscribe wherever you go for podcasts. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for joining me on Velocity of Content from CCC.